Hello and welcome to the Wigtown Book Festival podcast. I'm your host, Peggy Hughes. Well, the nights are fair drawing in, as they'd say around my way, and Halloween is fast upon us. Did you go guising when you were wee? Where I'm from, it's called Halloween knocking, but in other parts of the world, of course, they call it trick or treating. Either way, we're definitely going to be treating you on this episode by having a rummage through the many great events we had at the festival this year and offering some edited highlights. For our first delve into this year's festival, we're featuring two award-winning authors whose very different books should definitely be on your to-be-read pile. Conservationist Dara McAnulty, winner of the Wainwright Prize at the age of just 16, and Maggie O'Farrell, the author of the much-adored novel Hamnet. And we start with Maggie O'Farrell, a multi-award winning novelist. She has won the Somerset Mom Award, the Costa Prize and most recently the Women's Prize for Fiction this year for her novel Hamnet. She speaks to Stephanie Merritt about the fictional account of Shakespeare's son, the eponymous Hamnet, who died at the age of 11 in 1596. Tell us a bit about the genesis of this novel, because I know that this boy, Hamnet, is someone who's fascinated you for a long time. And perhaps you could tell us a bit about how you first encountered him and what particularly caught your imagination about this, this child. Well, it is. Yeah, it has been a really long time. It's probably about 30 years, actually. So I studied the play Hamlet when I first, my hires, my Scottish hires, when I was so 16, I think. I had a really brilliant English teacher. I went to North Berwick High School and had this fantastic English teacher called Mr. Henderson. He just mentioned in passing one day when we were studying, and I suppose I should say that the play really got under my skin. I really, as quite a lot of adolescents do, I think, I really felt as though I was probably quite related to the, you know, the uh, Danish prince. There was a lot about him which I felt <laughs> echoed how I felt about the world. So I, I was already, I completely fell for the play, and it is still my favourite Shakespeare play and has remained so. But in passing, my t- teacher said in passing one day um, that Shakespeare had had a son called Hamnet, who died, I think, about four years before the play was written or the famous play was first performed. And it just, I don't know, even it just struck me in that moment, you know, the symmetry of the names, because they are, of course, the same name, because Elizabethan spelling was so unstable. Hamnet and Hamlet are interchangeable in Paris records of the time. So I have a really clear memory of sitting in a classroom and looking down at the play, my kind of school copy of the play, and just putting my finger over the L and thinking, but it's it's the same name. You know, what does it mean? to call your probably most famous play, you know, your most famous tragedy, your famous tragic hero. I mean, actually, there are two Hamlets in the play, of course. There's the young man and then there's the ghost, and they're both Hamlet. The sort of name has been split into two. And what does that mean? What is it telling us? You know, I studied um, literature at university, and it was only then that I began to realise that actually Shakespeare, the man, is a very shadowy figure. You know, he's a, there's a real imbalance there because we have this enormous wealth of his work and his plays and his poetry, only thanks to his friends, actually, not thanks to Shakespeare. Shakespeare didn't preserve them for posterity. But then it's imbalanced because we know so little about him. You know, he's an incredibly mysterious figure, really, his biography. There's very little we know about him. There's very little concrete facts. There are so many huge gaps and longueurs in his story that despite the best efforts of, you know, these incredible biographers and scholars, no one's ever been able to. I mean, no one's really can explain how this boy from a small market town who only had a grammar school education, he probably was only in school to the age of 15, how he made that transition from being the Glover's son to, you know, the world's most celebrated playwright. Nobody really knows. Nobody knows how he got to London or why he went there or how he got onto the stage. You know, it's all 
it's mysterious. But it seems to me that this act, you know, calling your play after your dead son is an enormously significant act. It's telling us a huge amount. It's one of those moments where the past reaches out and almost touches you. You know, you can see that it's, it's, it tells us a lot about how he felt, I think, about his son dying, which is, is an event that I always feel is being really overlooked and diminished by history and biographers. You know, Hamlet's lucky if he gets two mentions in a huge kind of 500-page biography. And they mention he was born and they mention he died. And usually his death is all wrapped up in statistics about infant your child mortality in the 16th century which of course was very high but almost as if the implication was that it wouldn't have been that big a deal because you know children were dying all the time but I think that's a you know a ridiculous assumption because of course he was grieved very much you only have to read the first few scenes of the play to realize that. One of the things that I love about what you've done with this book is that you have brought that to the foreground the the domestic life of Shakespeare that is so little known and and often so overlooked. And although this is the story of Hamlet, of his son, it's almost, in my reading, I feel it's more the story of his wife, who again is a figure who is very often misrepresented by by academics um, or dismissed or uh, or overlooked completely. Um, And so much of this is her story. And it's, it's, although it's about fathers and sons, because that's what's reflected in the in the play um a lot of this is about motherhood and it's about mothers and children and wives and husbands and um can you tell us a bit about the character of Agnes and where she came from and and how you how you sort of landed on your version of her well I think you know I mean if we think that Hamnet has been overlooked you know the woman we know as Anne Hathaway or has been we've been taught to call Anne Hathaway even though her surname was Shakespeare, obviously, for most of her life. I mean, you know, Shakespeare himself is very shadowy, and we know very little about him. There are very few documents pertaining to him, but actually there's even less about his wife. You know, she is a kind of... One biographer describes her as the wife-shaped Boyd. Um, but, you know, this, you know the, the little that we do know about her hasn't stopped people from rushing forward to give us all or teach us to have one kind of narrative about her. You know, if you stopped an average passerby in the street and said, what do you know about a woman Shakespeare married? They're probably likely to say a couple of things, that she was a kind of strumpet and that she lured him into marriage, you know, because she was three months pregnant when they got married. She was older than him. You know, we're fed this kind of narrative. Um, and it's from a variety of sources. You know, it can be in biographers, it can be scholars, it can be screenwriters of plays, it can be other novelists. This whole kind of range of people has been teaching us for a really long time that I don't know where this desire to give the bard a kind of retrospective divorce comes from. (laughs) People are so determined to say he hated her, you know, he had to run away to London to get away from her, he regretted his marriage, they never slept together after the twins were born, you know, I mean, all this stuff, I have no idea where it comes from. I mean, people will always cite, you know, the famous second best bed, Will, as proof he loathed her. But, you know, to that I say, well, I'll hear the second best bed, but I'll raise you the fact that this was an interlineation. You know, if you look at his will, I mean, the will in itself is an incredibly dry, emotionless document. But you have to remember that the man was dying, possibly of typhoid, you know, and he was, he was, what, 52? So it was, I mean, you know, but even that, you know, the average life expectancy was 47. And he was obviously very ill. And there isn't any emotion for anybody in the will. It's, you know, if you think this is the last will and testament of probably the greatest you know, the man who wrote the greatest words about love and affection of all different types. There isn't a shred of that in the will at all. And, you know, the second best bet is squeezed in between two other lines. But also I would say to that, you know, at the end of his career, when he was the equivalent of a multimillionaire, because he was a really good businessman, when he retired, he chose, instead of staying in London, I mean, he could have set up house wherever he wanted to, 
he chose to go back to Stratford and live at his retirement with his wife. And that to me doesn't speak of a man who progresses his marriage. And, you know, there's obviously there's a, there's a very good reason why scholarship and biographies centre on his life in London. But it seems to me that the most important event of his life, the biggest drama of his life happened in Stratford offstage, and that was the death of his son. I don't know, I felt quite sort of angry on behalf of his wife, I don't, because I never found any evidence for all this approaching yeah. and sort of bit of hatred and actually downright misogyny, really. And so I decided I wanted to give them this kind of, I wanted to sort of uh, ask readers to forget everything they think they know about her and kind of open themselves up to a new interpretation. And one of the documents I read was her father's will. So her father, Richard Hathaway, died a year before she married William. And in it, he gives her a very generous dowry and he refers to her as my daughter, Agnes or Agnes, it would have been pronounced then. And that was a kind of <laughs> sort of a sort of thunderbolt moment because I thought, you know, not, as well as everything else, we've been calling her by the wrong name for almost half a century, you know, because surely if anyone knows her name, it's going to be her dad. I wanted to give, you know, sort of present the idea in this book that actually their marriage was a true marriage. It was a love match. They had this kind of, it was a partnership and there's a kind of exchange of artistry, you know, because a lot of biographers have made a huge deal over the fact that she was probably illiterate. You know, she was stupid. She was an ignorant peasant. What daughter of a sheep farmer probably would have learned to read in, you know, the early 16th century. It's unlikely. It's obvious that being illiterate doesn't necessarily mean you're stupid. So I wanted to give her an artistry of her own. And there's an awful lot of metaphors of hawking in um, Shakespeare's play. So I, I gave her the skill. And so she has a kestrel at the beginning of the book. And also, it's always intrigued me, actually, Shakespeare's knowledge or the depth of his knowledge about herbology and plants, particularly in Hamlet, of course, with the scene with the Madophilia gives people plants and they're, they're very accurate cures for some kind of character flaw that these people have. And so I decided to give that to her because I wanted her to have her own her own brand of intelligence that pe- perhaps wasn't literary, but was perhaps a, of a different kind. Well, and what you've done in the, the sort of the flashback episodes of the book where you show their meeting is to flip around that balance of power. So, I mean, one of the, I, I think, one of the, the, your really interesting choices in this book is never to name him. He is the Latin tutor. He's her husband. He's Hamlet's father, but he's never given his own name. So all of the weight of association that comes with the name Shakespeare isn't there. And when they first meet, she's the local celebrity, really. She's the one that is well known in Stratford because she has these healing gifts and because she's a little bit unusual. She's more of a free spirit, perhaps, than a woman might be expected to be. Why did you decide to leave him shadowy in that sense? Well, I think, I mean, the, the decision not to name him was sort of twofold, really, because, you know, as you say, just the surname, the surname Shakespeare never appears anywhere in the book at all, but it carries such heft, you know, and it carries such associations. You know, we all have our own relationship with Shakespeare inside our head. You know, he pervades our very language. He alters the way we think about ourselves and think about others and, you know, and, and kind of continues to do so with every single new production you might see. So in a sense, I wanted again I wanted to divorce him from his name and his sort of status as an icon and as a genius and just try and see him as a man you know as a, as a young bloke of 18 you know he was 18 when he got married and she was 26 in those days it was quite unusual I mean she 26 was a kind of average age of a bride to the altar but he was quite young so they had to have a special license in order to get married but actually interestingly um, Jermaine Greer has written a really brilliant book about her called uh, Shakespeare's Wife and in it she says that actually People have been asking the wrong question about this marriage. They've always been asking, why did he marry her? Why did this genius boy stoop to marry this <laughs> ignorant yeah. sheep woman? And she says it's the wrong way around. We should have been asking, why did she marry him? Her family was quite well-to-do. Her father was a yeoman. He, I mean, he died a year before, but he was, he was pretty kind of respectable. They had a good income. They had lots of land. Uh, whereas, And she was also of marriageable age, and she had a good dowry. 
Whereas actually um, his family, his father had this big fall from grace because he'd been a high alderman. He'd been very successful glover. But at the point at which he, they get married, his fortunes have taken a, quite a, a dive. He has been illegally trading in wool. He's been stripped of his high alderman title. There's also, he gets all involved in all sorts of weird sort of legal wrangles, one of, one of which is he fails to turn up at church. Uh, you know, having been a high alderman, that's quite a strange thing to do, because obviously going to church was compulsory. He'd been fined for leaving, well, actually what's described as audio on Henley Street. <laughs> Imagine what that was coming from a, a gloving workshop, probably really unpleasant. So it was just all these bizarre sort of slightly odd behaviour, which made me think, you know, John Shakespeare is an interesting character. And actually, you know, if you consider that William's paper trail is pretty scant, John's paper trail is enormous. Yeah. <laughs> all kinds of documents you can see about him, usually about him behaving badly or getting caught up in legal problems. So actually in that, you know, the status of his family was heard, was quite low at this point. Thing It's an interesting balance of power, I think, that Jermaine Greer certainly picks up on. You know, why did this quite well-to-do wealthy woman of age marry this penniless 18-year-old from with no trade and from a quite sort of disgraced family? In your version, it's because she has kind of gifts. She has these sort of slightly, <laughs> it's almost kind of hinted at that she has kind of um, slightly witchy gifts, but she sees something in him. Yeah, she I sees I mean, I was his just potential. Yeah, I was just trying to imagine what he would have been like at 18, you know, what it would have been like to, for him, you know, knowing him as the person we know him to be and the extraordinary gifts he has. I mean, it's not only that he is, you know, the greatest writer that ever lived. It's not as if anyone's even really coming close, you know, it's not as if there are many sort of uh, rivals to who are going to snatch that crown from him. You know, and I just wonder what he, what he would have been like, you know, in rural Warwickshire in the 16th century, the son of a glover. I mean, he must have been extraordinary, even though he must have stuck out like a sore thumb in some ways. And I mean, he probably thought he was quite odd, I imagine. But let's talk about the medical aspects of the novel, because uh, uh, you couldn't possibly have foreseen, but this novel has acquired um, an extraordinary pertinence in that Hamlet, I don't think it's a spoiler to say that Hamlet dies. It's right there in the in the prologue. Hamlet dies, but and, and it's supposed that he dies of the plague. And so you've got all sorts of information in there about what happens when somebody dies of a highly contagious disease and, and how the burial works and how people have to respond to that and how the household has to be isolated. There's an extraordinary passage in the middle of the book that's where it becomes almost sort of magic realism, where you you look at the plague that kills Hamlet and you sort of follow its journey all the way to Stratford. And can you tell us a bit about about where that came from, that middle part of the book, what kind of, you know, what you learned about how that community dealt with with plagues and uh, um, pandemics at the time. First thing I should say is that it's not known what the real Hamlet Shakespeare died of. You know, his burial has recorded, but there's no cause of death recorded at all. But he did die in high summer in August, and he did die in a plague year. So it's it's possible he died of the plague. But, you know, obviously there's no, unfortunately, there's no shortage of things that could have killed you in 1596. Um, so it isn't it isn't known, but it's but also the thing that's always intrigued me actually about um, or one of the things actually that's always intrigued me about Shakespeare is that you know despite his enormous output, you know, the huge number of plays and poetry, and the enormous kind of range he's always displayed in terms of theme and metaphor, um, that he you know his sort of range of metaphors is extraordinary, his knowledge and the number of subjects he sort of employs. He never, ever, ever once in any of his plays or poetry mentions what we now call the Black Death. He mentions pestilence and he mentions plague, with, with obviously with a, a lowercase p, as a plague on both your houses. But he isn't referring to what we now think of as the Black Death, which I've always found really extraordinary. It feels like a very loud absence. You know, if you think about how uh, prevalent it was, you know, I mean, there's an entrance in the Stratford-upon-Avon register three months after 
William Shakespeare is born. Then it's just three words. It said, hic insipit pestis, which here begins plague. And then about um, sort of 300 people in Stratford even die, including a family of four down the road from Henley Street. You know, Shakespeare, as an adult, his life career would have been constantly interrupted by the plague because, of course, the first thing yeah. the civic authorities did if there was a case of plague in London was to shut down the playhouses. I mean, if you think that the original Globe Theatre had a capacity of 3,000 people, you know, and all those 3,000 yeah. people were gathering in the middle of the day for the light in maybe the hot summer, you can see why it would be, you know, a horrible breeding ground for uh, the Black Death or, you know, any number of uh, illnesses. So he would have had to, you know, if the plague wasn't, if the plague outbreak wasn't too um, extensive, he would have had to take his company on tour to keep the money coming in in uh, counties around London, which is probably why he was in Kent when Hamlet died. Or if it was a very serious outbreak, he would probably have you know, been confined to his lodgings in uh, London, or he would have gone home to Stratford, I, I guess. Um, so it was, you know, it was something that would have been absolutely the forefront of every single Elizabethan's mind. They would have all known what the signs were and what the symptoms were. They would have all been aware that this was a disease that could kill a healthy young adult in 24 hours. And if it happened, you know, if you had a case in your house and there would have been a watchman stationed at your door and you wouldn't have been allowed to go out and nothing would have been allowed to come in for 40 days. And sometimes whole towns were shut down. I read something about the city of Oxford being completely shut down and quarantined um, for months, actually. And there were watchmen stationed on all the roads, not allowing any inhabitants to come out and anything to come in. I mean, actually, that's where we get our word quarantine from, uh, from the Italian for 40, 40 days quaranta, because it originated in Venice. It was a, a practice that the Venetians invented when obviously uh, people came off ships that had some nasty disease. It, it, is, it is an intriguing subject. And certainly... I didn't foresee the pandemic. I didn't foresee obviously. So it is it's odd now, actually. I mean, it's you know, there are books. I don't know if you find this, Stephanie, but usually when you finish a book, you know, you do your final copy edit or your final draft and, and you turn over the last page. And in a sentence, in those circumstances, usually your relationship with it is, is finished. You know, your involvement in it is done and your relationship with it is set. But this book, it, it has sort of altered, actually, since, since at about the time, you know, it was published on the 31st of March. That so was the first week of lockdown. And March was a kind of... A, strange month for all of us you know because I do remember I had I bought this vintage dress to wear to the book launch and to wear to various events that I was going to do in the (laughs) bookstore and I was taking it to the dry cleaners on the sort of second week of March and thinking oh everything's going to be fine but then by the time I picked it up five five days later it was really clear that all everything was off you know the bookstore wasn't going to have but he wasn't going to have on the dress was there was no need for the dress so it was you know everything turned very very quickly you know when I look back to the chapter particularly chapter I wrote about the flea you know, it, it it does seem odd. You know, I had for months, actually, I had these maps of Elizabethan trade routes and the paths of infection that came from China. Most of the, um, the waves of the Black Death in that time did, did originate in China and kind of made their way across Europe. I mean, they did knock out, I think it's a third of the world's population. So when you look at the kind of maths of these um, the statistics of these pandemics at those times, it's, it's absolutely staggering. You know, the number of deaths, it's, it's horrifying. It makes our pandemic look positively puny, you know, by comparison. Yeah. And I know we didn't, you know, they didn't have ventilators and the NHS and, you know, lots of antiviral medication. But, you know, it was it was an absolutely horrifying pandemic. You know, I mean, even where I live in Edinburgh, 
you know, you can see the mark of it on cities. You can see it everywhere in London. You can hear it in the streets' names. You come across those little kind of pockets of green space, often kind of triangular or rhomboid shape in the city of London. And you know that the reason why they haven't been developed is because beneath your feet uh, is a huge plague pit. You know, you can hear it in the names of the street. And here in Edinburgh, there's a park where my children, that all the children around here, learn to cycle their bikes because they have these little dips and hollows. And those are plague pits. There's a, I have a friend who has a garden and in the front garden is, is a gravestone and, it, and it's from a plague death. You know, the whole area of South Edinburgh that I live in was a place where the plague victims were brought and, you know, nursed until they died. So it, it is, you know, it's everywhere and in, in certainly in, in Europe, I think. And I think it's, um, you know, what's strange is that I look back at the maps that I had up on my wall when I was writing the, the chapter about the flea making its way towards Warwickshire. And they look exactly like the infographics we were looking at in February and March, you know, when we were realising that it was in Italy and then you know, I think obviously we all, I think once it was initially, I think everybody in Britain certainly knew that it was, it was, there's was only a matter of time till it came here. It is a strange, but in a sense, I, I feel a kind of closer empathy with the Elizabethans because, yeah. you know, whenever I think I sort of feel fed up because I think, well, I'm, I don't know, when can I go out for a dinner with my friends? <laughs> I think, you know, actually we're not doing too badly, <laughs> you know. Many thanks to Maggie O'Farrell and Stephanie Merritt. If you'd like to watch the entire event, then just head on over to our YouTube channel. Next up is the winner of this year's Wainwright Prize, Dara McAnulty. Dara is a young nature writer and conservationist from Northern Ireland, and he's received numerous awards and been an ambassador for the RSPCA and the Jane Goodall Institute. Dara is the youngest ever recipient of the RSPB Medal for conservation for his efforts working against raptor persecution and habitat loss. His first book, Diary of a Young Naturalist, won the prestigious Wainwright Prize for Nature Writing. In it, Dara discusses his experience as a young autistic person, his activism, his passion for and connection with the natural world, and his close relationship with his family. The following is an edited excerpt from our event with Chair Rachel Plummer. So to start us off, can you tell us what is it about the natural world that catches your imagination the way that it so clearly does? It's a mixture of things, as most interesting things in this world are. I think it starts off with basic curiosity, wanting to discover why and how and all these questions and asking those questions about the world around you because it's that from that process of asking those questions that we build up a greater understanding of that world. And the fact to me is that there's so many questions to ask in nature from what type of bird it is to how does this ecosystem work and what something is or how everything just interlocks and interconnects and is entwined with each other. Asking those questions about this complicated system of life on Earth, the answers are just as interesting as the question most of the time. That, for me, it really caught me and my imagination. Because when you go out into nature, everything's a lot more free, it feels. You're free to experience it in whichever way you want. And um, there's no judgment of how you're supposed to do something in nature. It gives you a almost a free space to be able to explore, to adventure in, to ask questions about and to build up a connection with without having this human world almost forcing you back in a sense, chaining you down by what you're supposed to be doing. 
it's obvious in every page, I think, of the book that you have this burning curiosity, but also that you take great comfort in nature, but also in writing about nature. So when did you first start to think about putting this together into a book? And it's formatted as a diary. Did it start as a diary, which you then pulled together into a coherent project? Or did you sort of start out knowing that you were going to write a book? I was writing a blog series called Diary of a Young Naturalist. And it was just basically how I was experiencing the world from a day-to-day basis. I was writing these blogs every day and I was uh, approached by Little Toller for doing a guest blog for their site and Common Ground. I don't know really how it happened, but we kind of got into conversations about like maybe compiling my blogs into a book. And then I started, and then we looked towards the Diary of a Young Naturalist blog series. And we thought, okay, we might be able to do these, maybe like a little tiny book for like Twitter followers or like a small wee thing. It was not ever meant to be this size. Completely by accident, I had sort of ran headfirst into a book without really understanding or realising what I was doing because I just wanted to keep on writing. You're remarkably frank in your writing about your mental health struggles, especially what seems to be really quite serious depression at times, both in response to bullying and in response to what's going on with the environment and with wildlife that we're seeing more and more of, but also, you know, struggling to navigate in a society that's um, often set up in a way that's deeply unhelpful to neuroatypical people. I wondered if you could talk a bit about how writing helped with your mental health struggles, but also how you feel social media, including your blog, Twitter, etc., affected your mental health both positively and negatively. I think I'm going to start with social media because it's really, really important. Twitter um, has been really, really important for me in that sense. It's given me a platform. It's given me um, the ability to talk about things that I'm passionate about, to be able to articulate them, share them with other people has been really, really important for me because being able to just write and describe things is so deep-rooted into my personality and who I am that to be able to speak to other people through writing, having that almost feedback on that, on these very small pieces of writing that are condensed into a limited amount of characters, but being able to write in that way is really, really important for me. And then, of course, there's the flip side of that, is where anybody can write whatever they want on this platform. (laughs) I think that would resonate with a lot of people, that experience of Twitter. Um, It's interesting what you say about that really short art form. For me, that reminds me of poetry. And I know I've seen tweets described as a kind of micro-fiction, but for me, they seem like those those very short poems. They're they're interesting, like a little little prose poem. A little small shot of literacy. Yeah, that's it, exactly. What advice would you give to young people who might want to get involved in conservation work? And also what advice you might have for parents or teachers who want to encourage a love of nature in young people, but who perhaps feel out of their depth or don't know where to start? I feel like it's strange because everybody's local area is widely different in what you can get involved in. And the National Trust are good people to get in contact with for volunteer work. They're really, really good. It's difficult because it does feel like there's not many active things you can do. So you've got to think about what sort of strengths you have. Is it writing? In which case, write about it. If it's artistic, make art about those things that you love. Because for me, as a writer, my 
way of action has been to write about it. I really like what you said about finding your individual strengths and, and yeah. playing to that. It, it's I think that's really true that there, there's yeah. what we can each do is different, but it can all be so important different. and helpful. Yeah. And for teachers, but I feel like as a teacher, your job is to educate your students about the world around them. And that means impressioning this sense of wonder, which I believe is one of the most important feelings a human can feel, is that connection of wonder. And for a teacher, you need to be able to inspire that wonder in your students by showing them the natural world and telling them that it isn't dirty, that it isn't dangerous, because so much of the school culture at this point is warnings, health and safety lines. Mm -hmm. I remember in primary school, we weren't allowed to go out if it was raining. That for me feels like you're designating what should be to these children and they're going to go for the rest of their lives and almost fear the rain be taught that the rain is a bad thing i personally love the rain by <laughs> getting absolutely soaked coming back in soaking and getting dried off and that feeling of getting dry dry and yeah warm and cozy yeah warm and cozy um it's a lovely feeling lovely lovely feeling <laughs> and you can't have that experience without getting wet in the first place absolutely and teaching your um pupils that the world is interesting and you can go out and explore it and luckily for us we don't have that many dangerous creatures um which means that you can basically explore to your freak's content without too much foreknowledge as long as you don't eat as long as you're not eating random berries and mushrooms you're most likely going to be perfectly fine teaching your children that i think is the best thing a parent and a teacher could do because I feel like the thing that annoys me most um, is parents telling their children, oh, don't touch that, that's dirty. Yes, you you've, you mentioned this a couple of times in the book. I, I definitely feel that frustration as well as a parent of young children myself. And yeah. my children are always out getting mucky, getting dirty. And, you know, I, I, I've had disapproving looks or bus drivers not wanting to let us on because the kids are mucky. And I can see where they're coming from. But at the same time, they're kids. Let them be mucky. Let them get dirty. It's not harmful. It's not harmful. I've been messing around in mud, dirt and occasionally cow pats. Yes. <laughs> for, 15, for like 14 years and I have not contracted any strange um, disease um, yeah I feel like at the moment you're in more danger in a shop <laughs> like that that way now doesn't it why are we being told that something is dirty when it can inspire so much wonder and passion and determination and there's no real repercussions to it absolutely mostly good like dirt is Good. it's what gives us um experience you cannot go for your life without getting dirty at least once and be a fruitful life because in my opinion because that's how we improve as human be human beings is through experiencing every aspect of our world and getting dirty is just one of those aspects that, so that's why i'd say to parents and teachers just let them go free it's their children what they're supposed to be doing it's like yeah. they're born to go free <laughs> so somebody's asking 
Dara, what was it like to win the Wainwright Prize at such a young age? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I knew someone was going to ask about the Wainwright Prize. <laughs> um, it felt very surreal. That, but it also felt very gratifying that a young person can write. In a, it, it does feel like nature writing has been... Mo like there are very many young nature writers or that there are at least not as many who are being seen and being able to show um that um we do exist and we can um write and we can we can maybe even win these literary prizes i hope inspires other young people to go out and write because i want to see more young writers because i do believe that we have this unique look on the world that because everybody has their unique look on the world and the writing and the literary world needs all of these perspectives to basically exist because that if everybody had if we were constantly referring to the same points of view and camera angles on a particular subject we we wouldn't get very many interesting books and the fact that we have all of these different perspectives and i think young people have a new and interesting one to give to the nature writing world and i really hope to see more of them in the future you know more of us in the future Absolutely. It does feel very timely at the moment with lots of the, the kind of the school strikes, lots yeah. of um, the things going on. It feels like um, something that's needed, something that's that's inevitable yeah. in a way. We're getting close to the end of our time. So I'd like to finish with one more question. It, it's a big question, so uh, I yeah. don't expect you to answer exhaustively. Um, but what do you feel are or should be the main goals of conservation in both the short and the long term going forward? And can you talk about some of the main challenges that our natural world's facing right now that we should be addressing? So short term, so we've got a few major conservation issues we've got the raptor persecution which is still happening and we do really need to get a grip of that be able to just try and put a stop to this rather uh, horrific killing we've got serious biodiversity decline which has been demonstrated multiple multiple times that we are in deep danger from many species going extinct which is horrific in itself and then what that cascade will cascade into every aspect of our lives so and then of course the massive elephant in the room climate change uh, we've got a lot of issues facing us at the moment um and we've all not just these massive issues of like climate change and biodiversity loss but we've also i found have so many issues on a local level i'm just thinking now on a that question that we were talking about before about what can you do to get involved with conservation? Absolutely, yeah. I think we all need to start local because it's only from building up this foundation that we can begin to learn how to solve these massive issues facing us. I'm a firm believer in the um, almost pyramid approach and um, where you have a strong foundation at the local level, which allows you to reach these tougher issues, which it then allows you to get to the top of the pyramid, which is obviously climate change and biodiversity loss. But you need almost a ladder to get up to, that, up to those points. And that base that you put the ladder on is your local environment. And 
your community and how everybody is interacting with each other and education. And for me, that is so important that we manage to get this right, which then allows us to focus all of our efforts on the big issues. Because if we focus on the massive issues first, I have a fear that everything below it is just going to fall away. And then the solution that we've made for this big thing is then also going to collapse. And then we're back where we started or possibly even worse than we were before. So, yeah, get involved on the local level and start building these communities that we desperately need. Absolutely. And if you don't see it, then start it. I think that's great advice. It's great advice. Many thanks to Dara and to Rachel. And remember, you can catch up with both of these events featured in this episode on our YouTube channel. Well, that's it for this one. We'll be back again next week with another episode of highlights from this year's festival. But until then, thank you so much for being with us. Take good care. Bye bye for now.